The scripture reading we'll have for today comes from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 1, verses 1. And the word of God reads as follows. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons, for the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and in the end of the earth, and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they gazed unto heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you to heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Amen. Well, again, like I said, today we start a new series of messages through the book of Acts. The whole series we've delighted to entitle Acts, the Spirit, uh, and the Church in the World. The Spirit and the Church in the World. I think that's going to be the theme that you see as we read and as we preach through the book of Acts. Just a couple of preliminary facts about the, the book. Um, it was one of the very first books that were ever, re- ever written, contained in the scriptures. Most believe that it was probably the fifth or sixth book ever penned. It was written by Luke. It was written by Luke and And Luke is also the author of the Gospel of Luke. And in fact, you look at Acts and you could say that Luke is Acts part one. Or you could say that Acts is the Gospel of Luke part two. And therefore often it is just taken up in one corpus in one reading, Luke-Acts, because you see as Acts begins, it begins almost where Luke leaves off. Who was Luke? Well, Luke was a close friend of the apostle Paul. He, He traveled with Paul on many of Paul's missionary journeys. As you read through the book of Acts, the person who is writing and and recording these instances under the the inspiration of the Holy Spirit often says, we, we did this and and we did that, letting us know that the person who recorded this was an eyewitness of these events. Luke traveled with 
Paul and became a close friend and associate of the apostle. So fond was Paul of, of Luke that in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 14, Paul refers to him as the beloved physician. Apparently, Luke was a doctor. He was a physician. And, and how appropriate that Paul would have a physician traveling with him. I'm sure that when Paul learned of Luke's skill, he enlisted Luke in his fellowship. I'm going to need you, bro. Time's going to get hard. And I'm going to need some medication. He calls him the beloved physician in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 11, as Paul is getting to the end of his life and he's languishing there in prison, he writes to Timothy. And you know what he says to Timothy as he gets to the end? He tells Timothy that all have departed and deserted me, Timothy. Only Luke is left with me. Luke, there at the end, faithful to the end, with Paul. He was a faithful physician. He was a faithful friend. And he gives, he gives a faithful account of the life and the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he not only gives a faithful account of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, but in Acts he gives a faithful account of the early days of the church after Jesus ascends back to the Father. The book of Acts covers some 32 or 33 years of the early days of the church and the witness that they had for Christ following the last days of Christ on the earth. What we see in Acts is some remarkable things. We see the rise of the apostolic ministry. We see the rise of the apostles as prominent men in the history of redemption. Before, they were just lonely uh, 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 ignorant, unlearned fishermen from Galilee. But in Acts, you see them rise up to become pillars and, and stalwarts in the church of Jesus Christ. Some of the most prominent names in the history of redemption. How do we know them? We know them, first of all, as we are introduced to their ministry in the book of Acts. We witness and we read about the growth and the expansion of the church that, that as Jesus gathered these 12 disciples around him himself. And, and from that group moved a, a grand movement of, of, of the power and the Spirit of God into all parts of the world, the fruit of which are you and I sitting here this morning. What you see in Acts is the root of that. The root of your presence here this morning is here in the record of the early disciples and apostles in the book of Acts. We are introduced for the first time to some prominent names. We first learn who Paul the apostle is from Acts. We, we first are introduced to Timothy in Acts. We first learn about Stephen. We first hear the name Barnabas in the book 
of Acts. What a wonderful, wonderful account Dr. Luke has given us. And more than anything in the book of Acts, what we see, beloved, is the work and the power of God, the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, as he takes the life and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he applies it to the church, and then he works out its implications for the world. This morning, as, as Mark was reading from the book of Acts, the first couple of verses, he referred to the book as the Acts of the Apostles. And indeed, historically, that is how it has been referred to. In fact, in some of your Bibles, you may see the heading where it reads, Acts of the uh, Apostles. And indeed, it does, it does record. It does record the Acts of the Apostles as they go out into the world, testifying to the person and work of Jesus Christ, calling men and women to repentance. But I would like to suggest to you this morning that Perhaps a more appropriate title for the book of Acts is not so much the Acts of the Apostles, but rather the Acts of the Holy Spirit. The Acts of the Holy Spirit. For you see, throughout Acts, there are references, as John Stott tells us, to the promises, to the gifts, to the outpouring, to the baptism, to the fullness, to the power, and to the guidance of Holy Spirit. The prominent player upon the scene that is the book of Acts is God, the Holy Spirit himself. And the Bible reminds us then that the chief ministry of the Holy Spirit is their promotion and the glory of Jesus Christ. And if that is the case, then it should not surprise us at all that at the heart and the center of the book of Acts is the person and work of Jesus Christ. So it should be perhaps called the Acts of the Holy Spirit as he makes much of Jesus Christ. The book of Acts, as we shall see this morning, and in many Sunday mornings going forward, centers our attention on Jesus Christ. And indeed, the first few verses this morning re remind us that the church has always been and continues to be built upon the promises of Jesus Christ. It was my father who once told me, perhaps and, and indeed on more than one occasion, he told me, he said, son, promises were made to be broken. I thought about that over, over all my life, and I'd say, no, dad, promises were made to be kept. Records were made to be broken. The promises were made to be kept. The thing that you read about in the scriptures, beloved, is that our God is not only a promise-making God, but he is a promise 
keeping God. He keeps his promise. For the Bible is a promise book. That's what the Bible is, beloved. It is a promise book. It is filled with the promises of God to his people. From Genesis to Revelation, what you read over and over and over again are the promises of God to his people and to the world of what he will do for and through his people. Indeed, we read about the New Testament, the New Covenant. What the covenants basically are, beloved, are promises. They are promises of what God will will do for us and, and through us. And the new covenant is essentially a promise. In Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 16 through 17, the Bible says, And this is the covenant, God speaking, that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. As a summation of the new covenant, that is the promise of God to his people. This is essentially the hope of the church. The church is built upon the promise of Christ. In Matthew chapter 16, in verse 18, where he promises his disciples very clearly, indisputably, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's a promise from Christ. He promises, I will build my church, and nothing is going to stop it. Nothing. That's a promise that he has made. That is a promise on which the church itself stands. And as Acts opens, we are quickly reminded that the story of the early church is the story of a people standing on the promises of Christ. And we notice three promises in particular this morning in this text that I want to highlight for you. Three promises in particular. The first is the, prom- is the promise of Holy Spirit. The second is the promise of a witness. And the third is the promise of Christ's return. You see, the first promise there is the promise of Holy Spirit. The first couple of verses of Acts points us back, no doubt, to the Gospel of, of Luke. And you see similar language as the Gospel of Luke opens up. For Acts, like the Gospel of Luke, the Bible says, was dedicated to a fella named Theo. Not my brother, Theodore, but a gentleman named Theophilus. Theophilus, a lover of God, or one who is loved by God, or a friend of, of God. And you see that same dedication is made in the Gospel of Luke. Luke penned these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in dedication to his most excellency, he says, in the Gospel of Luke, Theophilus. And here we are reminded then that Acts is just a continuation of of what Luke had begun to do 
in detailing the life and death and resurrection of Christ. And if Luke is detailing the life and death and resurrection, then Acts is what's happening after Jesus leaves, after he left, after his ascension back to the Father. It is the account of what happened to those who were charged with carrying this radical message and mission that God had given them concerning the kingdom of God being brought into the hearts of men and women. But in order to do this, Jesus knew that his disciples would need some assurances. He knew that they would need some reaffirmations. And thus, before he left, he gave them several promises. And the first is the promise of Holy Spirit. And see that in verses 4 through 5. What's central to the promise of God the Son is the promise to send God the Holy Spirit. God the Father sent God the Son into the world to save us from our sins. God the Father and God the Son then would send God the Holy Spirit into the world to apply that salvation to our lives and all of the benefits that it has for us, indeed, for the world. And the promise of the Holy Spirit, beloved, that Jesus says here is really just a reiteration, really, of the promises that Jesus had made to his disciples previously. For you know that Jesus had told them on several occasions that he was going to send a helper. He was going to send a comforter, a guide, a teacher after he ascended. In John chapter 14 and beginning in verse 26, Jesus says, The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. There is Christ doing his earthly ministry, promising to his disciples the sending of Holy Spirit. In John chapter 16 and verse 7, he says to his disciples, It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. In chapter 16 of John, in verse 13, Jesus says, When the Spirit of truth comes, namely Holy Spirit, he will guide you into all truth. Jesus was preparing his disciples to, to, to realize the promise that he was going to send the Holy Spirit to them. And even now, on the day of his ascension, when he's about to leave them, he reiterates the promise that he made to them. Fellas, don't forget, I've told you before, I tell you again, I will not leave you alone. Holy Spirit is going to come. And what does Jesus tell them to do? You just wait on him. You just wait on him. And here we see inherent in this promise of the Holy Spirit is the anticipation of the Spirit. The anticipation of the Spirit. Jesus tells his disciples to stay in Jerusalem and wait. Wait. Wait on God. 
Now, you do understand that patience was not high on the list of virtues for the disciples. And no doubt, the the apostle Peter wanted to get a jump on the other disciples, and he was ready to run out the door. And Jesus says, no, all of you, you got one assignment right now, and that assignment is to wait. Stay in Jerusalem, Jesus says in Luke chapter 24 and verse 49. Stay in Jerusalem until you have been clothed with power from on high. There's a waiting that God, Jesus Christ, wants his disciples to do. But it is not just a waiting, it is an anticipation. It is not just a waiting and and just lounging around and lollygagging and not doing anything, but it is an anticipation. For you know something is coming. You're waiting there for the door to spring open. Something is going to happen. Something is coming. And it is an anticipation that you long for. Um, But yet you still have to wait. This is difficult for us. It, It really is. It is difficult for us. I can testify to you this morning that the vast majority of the mistakes that I've made in my life is because I didn't want to wait. I got out ahead of what God was doing. I thought I knew better. I thought that what I needed, I needed right now. And what needed to happen, it needed to happen right now. But here is the thing, beloved. Jesus is teaching his disciples a very important lesson that should be pressed upon us also this morning. And that is don't run out and call yourself doing your thing for God until God has really done his thing in you. Slow down and wait. Wait until the Holy Spirit actually comes and guides you into these truths. Wait. It was A.B. Simpson, the founder of the Christian Missionary Alliance, who said concerning this passage, these waiting days were necessary to enable the disciples to realize their need, their nothingness, their failure, and their dependence upon the Master. They had to get emptied first before they could be filled. And indeed, the Lord has called you, you believe the Lord has called you to a ministry, the Bible, you should wait on it. Wait until the Lord has actually prepared and filled you so that ministry can be fruitful. Moses got out ahead of the Lord thinking he was going to bring redemption to the nation of of Israel and ended up 40 years out on the backside of the desert before the Lord spoke to him again. No, Moses, you're going to wait. You're going to wait. That is often the case with God's agenda, beloved. His timing is rarely our timing. And therefore, it is necessary to always seek to be patient and wait on the Lord. And again, the Bible says to wait. And Jesus told them to wait. But, but since it was a promise, 
they were not only to wait, but also to anticipate. And what were they to anticipate? They were to anticipate the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And inherent in the promise of the Holy Spirit was not simply this anticipation that the Holy Spirit would come, but when the Holy Spirit came, there would be this identification with the Spirit. Wait for the Lord to identify you as his own. That's what baptism is, beloved. Essentially, that's what it is. It is an identification. And when the Holy Spirit comes, Jesus says, he will mark you out as belonging to Christ. This is what Jesus is essentially saying to them. He essentially is saying, before I send you out, I am going to put my seal upon you. I am going to identify you as mine so that others will know that you belong to me. This is the reason why the baptism comes. You do understand that that is the point of baptism. Baptism is an identification. It is a marking you out. For the one in whom you have been baptized. You now are not your own. You belong to him. It's for the world to see. Your identity now is in Christ. You know this happened when Jesus got baptized? When Jesus was baptized, the Bible says that he came up out of the water and the heavens opened up and the Spirit of God descended upon him. And what did God the Father in heaven say? This is my beloved Son. Why? That's what baptism does. It tells the world, you belong to God. Such it is, beloved, with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We shall see in coming days when the Spirit comes. It's for the purpose of marking out those who belong to Christ. And in fact, the Bible says that if you do not have the Spirit, you don't belong to Him. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 9, those who are Christ are those who have been given His Spirit. And all those who belong to Christ have been given his spirit. As 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13 reminds us that we all have this same identifying mark because we all have been baptized by one spirit into one body. How you know you belong to him? You know you belong to him because as Romans chapter 8 and verse 16 says, his spirit bears witness with your spirit that you belong to Christ. Jesus says to his disciples, wait. Anticipate the spirit has come and that anticipation is for your identification. I'm going to mark you out as mine. These are my beloved disciples. World Hear and listen to them. Promise of the Holy Spirit. It's what Jesus gives his disciples before he leaves. But he not only gives them the promise of the Holy Spirit, he gives them a promise of a witness. And you see this as verses 8 and 6 through 8. 
when Jesus said that when the Spirit does come, when that promise that I give you is fulfilled and the Spirit does come, you will receive power to be my witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And the promise of the Spirit was a promise unto witnessing. Jesus says, I'm not only going to promise you the Spirit, I'm promising you, you're going to have a witness. But notice, there's three things about this witness that are important. And the first one is that there is power for this witness. And the power of this witness is Holy Spirit. Here we go again. The Holy Spirit is going to come. Why did they have to wait? Because they needed power. They needed power to do what Christ was calling them to do. And beloved, if the book of Acts teaches us and demonstrates and shows us anything, it will show us our need and our dependence upon Holy Spirit to accomplish anything good for God. It was Martin Luther who said in his famous song, if we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. Jesus was to send his disciples out on their own, their striving and efforts would be losing. Wait until Holy Spirit comes because you are going to need power, strength. You're going to need to be changed. Think about that, beloved. Think about that. What makes a person who is slow to speak suddenly willing to speak up for Jesus? What makes a person who is reticent to go suddenly desire to go? What makes someone who is running away from the things of God suddenly want to run into the fire for God? What makes the person want to speak and go and do and die? What gives, who gives boldness to the meek? Who gives courage to the weak? It is the work of the Holy Spirit. In our lives. It was Derek Thomas who said, These impoverished disciples, unlearned men, manifested no signs, no signs of being church planners and martyrs. And yet the Holy Spirit will come and he will change all that. Why? Because he always does. He always does. There's no other explanation for it, beloved. They can come up with all kind of explanations they want to. I am, a, I am a living testimony. If you had seen me before Holy Spirit got a hold of me, you would not believe that I'd be here doing this, what I'm doing right now. The only difference is the work of the Holy Spirit in my life, changing me, empowering me to do the things that God has called me to do. This is the 
This is the power of the witness that the disciples will have, as we'll see going forward. The only reason that they do what they do is because they have been filled and powered with Holy Spirit. But not only see the power of the witness, see the person of the witness. They're not going to be witnessing to them about themselves. Jesus said that when the promise of the Spirit comes, you will receive power to be my witnesses. My witness. The person of the witness is Jesus Christ himself. The Spirit comes to make much of Jesus and to empower us to do the same. That's the point. That's the point, beloved. Spirit-filled preaching is Christ-centered preaching. Spirit-filled worship is Christ-centered worship. The Bible says in John chapter 16, beginning in verse 13, that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will glorify Christ and not himself. It's important for for us to understand because a lot of people have things twisted today. Had somebody come here a couple times, they visit with us a couple times, and they say, well, you know, I don't know about that. I don't know about y'all church because y'all don't talk about the Holy Spirit enough. And I said, I'm sorry. But I thought we were called to make much of Jesus Christ. And the only reason that a person can make much of Jesus Christ is because the Holy Spirit is doing the work in the midst. Holy Spirit does not come for you to make much of Holy Spirit. If you really have the Holy Spirit, you're going to be making much of Jesus. Don't get it wrong, beloved. Paul says we preach Christ and him crucified. Paul said, I know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is why, this is why our songs seek to be Christ-centered. This is why we make much of Christ. It's because this is what happens when you are being led by the Spirit of God. You are making much of Christ. If you go somewhere and they're making much of Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit is wondering, how come they're not making much of Jesus? The Holy Spirit doesn't come into the world to make a name for himself. He comes to make a name for Jesus. I didn't make that up. That's what the Bible says. We've just got it twisted. Because I fear that for most people, even those who claim to be Christian, Jesus isn't enough. He's just not enough. And that lets me know that you probably don't have Holy Spirit anyway.
Jesus said in Luke chapter 24 and verse 27, as he's speaking to those disciples on the road to Emmaus, he opened up the Bible and he began to teach them from the scriptures all that the scriptures said about who? Holy Spirit? No, about Jesus. About Jesus. This is why when you go through the book of Acts and you look at the sermons that, that the apostles are preaching, what are they preaching about? They're preaching about Jesus because he is the one for whom we give the witness. You shall receive power from the Holy Spirit so that you will be my witnesses. That's the one. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. When you make, you know what the Bible says? No one calls Jesus Lord except by Holy Spirit. And every time you lift your hands and praise Christ in glory, Holy Spirit says, Amen. 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 That's the the person of the witness, and you see the power of the witness, and, and lastly, you see the pattern of the witness. The pattern of the witness is here, there, and everywhere. That's what you're going to witness, guys. You're going to be here. You're going to be there. You're going to be everywhere. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the end of the earth. This is the pattern. This is the pattern of the witness that they are to do in the power of the Spirit is that they are to first be witnesses in Jerusalem where they are. Go to Jerusalem and wait. And after you get the Holy Spirit, guess what you're going to do? You're going to witness to me where? In Jerusalem, right where you are. But you're not going to stop there. As you have witnessed in Jerusalem, you're going to move out from Jerusalem into all of Judea and Samaria. That's the surrounding parts of Jerusalem, the parts of Jerusalem that the Jews typically didn't like to go. There were surrounding neighborhoods, the bad parts. You're going to go over there, but you're not going to stop with going over there. Then, ultimately, you're going to go out into all of the world. That's the pattern. That's the pattern of the witness. That's the pattern of the witness in your life. You do understand that when you get the power of Holy Spirit and you understand that that power comes upon you for the witness of Christ, the first place you witness is right there in your home. That's the first place you witness, right there in your home. And as you're being an effective witness in your home, then you move to other places out there, your neighborhood, your, your job, your, immediately, your immediate community. But then if you have a heart for the things of Christ, you don't stop there. You want to move out into all of the world. You want everyone to know what the Lord Jesus has done for you. And that's the pattern you see in the book of Acts. They start off in Jerusalem, and the Holy Spirit falls, and then they move out into Judea and Samaria later on, and the Holy Spirit falls upon them again. And then they begin to move out into the world among the nations and the Gentiles, and the Holy Spirit falls and moves, them, moves upon them out there. That's the pattern. That's always the pattern. 
here, there, and everywhere. Unfortunately, the Jews in the Old Testament, the Jews in the Old Covenant got it wrong. They missed it. They only thought about here. They refused there. And if the world was going to get saved, the world was going to have to come to Jerusalem. And that was the mentality. We'll tell you about God, but you got to come. You got to come see us. You got to come to us. Do you know that the that the will and the witness of God from the very beginning has always been for his people to go from here to there and everywhere. Always has been the case. Always to the end of the world. Always to all of the nations. This is what the new covenant God clarifies and reminds us. That we don't ask the world to come to us. We are willing and ready to go to the world. It's always been God's plan in Isaiah chapter 49 and verse 6. This isn't new. The language that Jesus usually pulls straight from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 49, God says to Israel, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. All Jesus does is reiterate what God has always said. It is my desire for this glorious salvation to reach the end of the earth. That is the pattern. Here, there, everywhere. Everywhere. And that's what we'll see as we go through the book of Acts. That's what we'll see. The disciples witnessing here, they'll go there, and then ultimately they're willing to go everywhere. That is the promise God gives, Christ gives to his disciples in this text, the promise of a witness built upon the promise of the Holy Spirit. And before he leaves, he gives them perhaps the greatest motivation of all, the promise of his return, the promise of his return. You know, the early church, beloved, these early disciples, they were basically motivated by two realities. That's what you'll see. They were basically motivated by two realities. The first reality was the resurrection of Christ. That was the first reality in which Christ promised that he would be raised, and they witnessed it, as it says earlier in this text, that he gave them many proofs for that. There was no doubt in the early disciples' mind that Christ was raised from the dead, beloved. He stay, they saw him. They talked to him. He gave them proof upon proof upon proof upon proof. And I am convinced that the reason he did that is because he, he knew that they would need to be assured it was really him. He gave it to them. With many proofs, Luke says. This was their first motivation. The first motivation was the resurrection of Christ. The second motivation was the return of Christ. 
which he also promised, and which now they wholeheartedly believe. Because, I mean, if he can be raised from the dead, he said he was going to be raised from the dead, and he was raised from the dead. If he say he's coming again, I'm banking on that one. I have no problem believing that, Lord. And these are the two realities that they stake their lives upon and their witness upon the promise that Christ would return. Notice what the angel says to these guys as, as, as Jesus is being taken up in their midst. They're sitting here listening to Jesus talk about these promises of what's going to happen, and suddenly, and suddenly, this cloud engulfs Jesus, and Jesus begins to lift up right out of their midst. They're looking up, and the angel says, why do you stand there looking into heaven? I would look at them and say, well, you'd be looking too if you weren't angels. <laughs> what do you mean? The man was just standing here. And now he's being lifted up in a cloud in a midst. Of course I'm going to be gazing. And then the angel says, this Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. What is that same way? This is what the disciples staked their lives upon. Not only that Christ was raised, he's going to return. He's going to return. And you know how he's going to return? He's going to return the same way he left. And how did he leave? Well, the first way he left, his going was glorious. It was a glorious going. He was lifted up, the Bible says, and a cloud took him out of their sight. This idea of a cloud represents biblically the visible glory of God. And you see this over and over again in the Old Testament as, as God is dealing with the nation of Israel and, and Moses again and again. His glory is shown in a cloud that engulfs his people. Whenever they wanted to meet with God, God would come down and they, know God, they knew God was present because there was the glory you see that in Exodus chapter 16, verse 10. You see it again in Exodus 40 and, and 34. You see it in the transfiguration of Christ. There in Matthew chapter 17, as Christ is up on the mountain with his disciples. And he reveals to, to them all of his glory. And the Bible says that a cloud engulfed them. Because that was a manifestation of the glory of God. Christ is taken up in a cloud to represent the glory of God. And do you know what the Bible says? It says that when he returns, he will return in a cloud. In Luke chapter 21 and verse 27. At that time. Jesus says, you shall see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and glory. 
How did he go? He went up gloriously. How will he return? He will return gloriously. How did he go up? He not only went up gloriously, beloved, he went up unexpectedly. You do understand that. Disciples are standing around there talking, and Jesus is talking with them. And suddenly, the Bible says, this cloud engulfs them, and he begins to go up. We weren't expecting that one, Lord. That's why they're amazed. That's why they're gazing. They were not expecting for Jesus to suddenly be lifted up out of their midst. And he was. He went unexpectedly. You know how he's coming back? He's coming back unexpectedly. But the Bible says over and over again, his return shall be unexpected also. Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 42. Therefore, stay awake, Jesus says, for you do not know on that on what day your Lord is coming. Therefore, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 2. The Bible says, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And the early disciples understood this. And they looked for Jesus to come just as he went. And it was motivation for their faithfulness. They did not want the Lord to return and they not be found faithful doing what he charged them to do. This motivated them. This, this moved them. This got them up in the morning. This, this allowed them to speak with boldness, knowing that the Lord could return at any day. This moved them to even subject themselves to the fires of persecution, knowing that at any moment the Lord could return and receive them unto himself. They wanted to be ready. They wanted to be found faithful. They wanted to be busy in themselves when the Lord came back. And they anticipated him coming back at any moment. At any moment. Here's a question for us, beloved. Is that your mindset? Will you be ready when the Lord returns? Will you be ready when the Lord returns? Beloved, understand that Christ promised that he would be raised from the grave. Told his disciples, in fact, on three occasions, right after one another. In, in Mark chapter 8 and verse 31, in Mark chapter 9 and verse 31, in Mark chapter 10 and verse 34. He told his disciples again and again, boys, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be crucified, but I'm going to be raised again in three days. And guess what? He was. And now... In Acts chapter 1, he promises that he will return. And guess what? 
He will. He will. Will you be ready? The first disciples were not ready for the resurrection. They weren't. They missed it. Jesus had promised. He had told them over and over again. The first disciples were not ready for the resurrection. But you can, uh, you can rest assured that these same disciples were committed to being ready for his return. They're not going to miss it this time. They were not going to miss it this time. We fail to live by the promise of your resurrection. We're not going to fail to live by the promise of your return. How about you? How about us this morning? Will you be ready when the Lord returns? So how do I get ready, you ask? And you do what the disciples did. You live your life standing on the promises of Christ. You believe him. You believe his promises. You believe that there is a salvation, no other one but Jesus Christ, and you live by that. You live your life in, in such a way that others can see that the Holy Spirit abides in you. You live on that. You live on the promise that Jesus Christ has promised that all those who believe and trust in him will have eternal life. You live upon those promises. You do what the church has always done. And you stand on the promises of Jesus. That's why we sing that song, beloved. Because we are. We are. We're standing on the promises of Christ our Savior. Standing on the promises of Christ. The early church did. And if we are faithful, we will too also. Stand. Stand. Stand on the promises of Jesus. Let's pray.